Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number three in the ways of Balerian, class in which I will boldly attempt to complete our discussion of the way of the children of Hurin. Uh, but first, a few brief things. First, another apology. I'm sorry, the rumble chat windows are still not up uh, on the right pages. I apologize for that. I think... I'm not even sure that they exist anywhere yet. Um, I apologize. We're uh, still working through that. That should be done soon, I promise. But for now, sorry. Um, Erica Hansen, absolutely, I agree. She suggests everybody live tweet instead. I think it's a fantastic idea. I love live tweeting things. Um, a little hard for me to live tweet my own lecture, but uh, it, anyway, it's really fun. Um, uh Anyway, so, uh, so again, first I apologize for that. Second, two announcements, uh, two very special events that are coming up, um, which I wanted to make sure you knew about. Uh, one, especially, because it's coming up very soon, uh, and that is uh, this, coming, um, uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, we have a special guest lecture. You may remember, those of you who have been with us for a little while, for uh, the whole last year, will remember that last year, during our fundraising campaign, uh, we raised some extra money through our campaign and the generosity of you, our students and, and, and listeners, to, uh, uh, to uh, do a special guest lecture series. Um, uh, as series of, uh, of six lecturers who would be coming in and giving really cool lectures. We've had two of them already, and they've been awesome, Matthew Dickerson and Mike Drought. Um, and we have another one coming up this weekend on Saturday evening. Um, and the special guest lecturer is David Brin, a New York Times best-selling, multi-Hugo award-winning science fiction author. Um, uh, uh, he's a, a, a wonderful writer, very influential in, in uh, the field of contemporary science fiction. And the topic of his talk is going to be, Can Science Fiction Change the World? So if you are interested in science fiction or know anybody who is, this is a really cool opportunity to get to hear live from a major fiction, uh, figure in contemporary science fiction uh, to be able to... Um, uh, to be able to ask him questions and, uh, uh, and interact with him, too. It's going to be really, really, really uh, cool opportunity. So, again, his talk is called Can Science Fiction Change the World? The date is this Saturday on the 25th of July, and the time is 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Okay, so you can translate that into your own. See, Yana, it's going to be, like, really early for you, right? It's only going to be, what, like midnight or something? It's uh, uh, So no problem. Um, anyway... Uh, it, it, that's going to be really great. So I strongly uh, encourage you. Yes, uh, Michael, uh, uh, copies of that are going to be, uh, recordings of it will be made available. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, I mean, if you possibly can make it, you, you totally should. Um, let me, if you are interested in registering for that, for those of you who are here uh, live, this is the registration link uh, for David Brin's lecture. Um, and if you want a little bit more information or have a link to send somebody to, if you want to tell people about it, uh, this is the link for the guest lecture series. For those of you who are listening, go to the myth mythguard.org, uh, and under the Academy tab, you will find the page for the guest lecture series, uh, where you will find the registration link and a fuller description of who David Brin is and what's going to be going on in this talk. So, um, strongly encourage you to, uh, uh, to get a chance to, to do that. <clears throat> the other special event that's coming up soon uh, is uh, one that I am personally very excited about. And this is 
a thesis presentation by one of our Mythgard students, one of our Mythgard MA students who is completing her degree, Sparrow Alden. Some of you will know her. And um, she is uh, she's doing a presentation on Monday, August 3rd. Um, and her presentation is on uh, is on The Hobbit and Tolkien's word usage in The Hobbit. Um, yes, exactly. Sarah Lagarde says uh, Sparrow is the the spreadsheet queen. Absolutely, uh, Sarah. And you will see uh, in her presentation how she is taking her spreadsheets and uh, using them uh, to conquer the world. What Sparrow is doing is some really incredible, cutting-edge stuff. Um, uh, In fact, it's funny because it links back in to the guest lecture series that I was just talking about. Sparrow was already doing some really interesting things looking at Tolkien's word choice and how, what what kind of, she's focused on The Hobbit, and looking at the words that Tolkien uses and and the the sort of the places that he uses them. She's really fascinated on uh, sort of the the, the connections among uh, Tolkien's words and his word choices. And um, then she saw Mike Drought's guest lecture, the first lecture in our series, and it completely changed her life, uh, and she got permission to use his software, which is which is open uh, for people to use his, uh, his Lexomics software, uh, and she's been applying that to The Hobbit, so she's been doing, based on her really intricate work that she's done uh, in uh, um, compounding her spreadsheets and lists of uh, Tolkien's word usage of The Hobbit, she's using the Lexomics program in order to map Tolkien's word usage in some really fascinating ways, and she has uh, uh, demonstrated some really jaw-dropping stuff about The Hobbit. Um, The way that Sparrow is looking at The Hobbit provides an opportunity to do something that I've always wanted to do. Whenever, as a reader, I've wanted to sit down and try to make a point about style or tone or something like that, if you've ever tried to do that, if you've ever tried to sit and write an argument about it, um, you know, to, to, to write a paper on a subject like that, it's very, very difficult because, you, you know, it's not just like I'm taking this passage and I'm explaining what's in this passage or something. In order to really be able to point to pattern, you know, larger patterns of word usage and tone and style... Really, like when you're writing a traditional essay, you only have two choices. One is to cherry pick examples, right, and claim that you've shown something about the work, the work as a whole, which is sometimes not really true because you're cherry picking, right? And the other is just to kind of wave your hands and make vague generalizations about things. And um, a lot of both of these kinds of arguments have been over the years uh, been built about The Hobbit. Of course, everybody knows, um, you know, it's been observed about The Hobbit since the very first reviews, you know, C.S. Lewis's uh, book review uh, on The Hobbit when it first came out in 1937, um, that, you know, the tone shifts very significant, very dramatically over the course of the book. And, uh, but, but the, the, you know, one of the questions that Sparrow sits down and asks is, how exactly? Um, where can we see this tonal shift? What does that tonal shift consist in? Um, can we can can we see it? Can we show it? Um, yeah, we can say it happens, but how does he do it? What does he do to make that tonal shift? Um, and uh, through her her analysis, her analysis I find dazzling. So anyway, I strongly encourage you to. Uh, that's going to be seven thirty p.m. Eastern time on Monday, August eighth. Uh, so that one's not coming up quite as uh, quite as soon uh, as the David Brin lecture, um, but um, 
Uh, but anyway, I strongly recommend uh, uh, Sparrow's talk as well. It's, it will also be a really wonderful introduction for people who are not familiar with um, the whole digital humanities approach. You know, doing this kind of a st- statistical analysis of word usage in a book, if that seems sort of cold and heartless to you, uh, and perhaps very distant from the experience of reading a book, I strongly encourage Sparrow's talk because uh, it will, I, I hope, really sort of open your eyes to the way this can be used as a tool. It's going to be awesome. Uh, Matthew, yeah, that's definitely going to be re- recorded as well. So yes, August 3rd, um, August 3rd at 7.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time is going to be Sparrow's talk. So David Brin on Saturday at 6 o'clock p.m., Saturday the 25th, and then Sparrow's presentation uh, on uh, words that you were saying in The Hobbit um, on Monday August 3rd at 7.30. Okay, so those are my two big announcements. I posted links, the registration links for both of them uh, in the chat here. Uh, and we'll be posting a lot more on uh, both of these as the week and the next couple weeks go on. So, Okay, with that, back to the Lay of the Children of Hurin. Now, um, I wanted to tell... There were a couple passages that I had on my list from our first class, uh, which I didn't get to either of the last two weeks. Um, but I, and I wanted to start with those today because <clears throat> they're... Um, they raise a particularly interesting issue, and it's one that I think is important to pause for a second and think about, um, because I think it's easy to misunderstand the significance of these things, but I think it's a really important thing for Tolkien's work. And what I'm talking about, um, and for the experience of reading the history of Middle-earth, what I'm talking about are the links between the stories that he's telling here and the stories that we're familiar with when we come across something which um, is... You know, sort of eye-opening, right? Like, for instance, so there were two passages that really jumped out at me, and I'm sure that you noticed them too when you were reading version one of the Way of the Children of Hurin. As, for instance, example number one. Then he bade them drink. This is Beleg to Turin and his uh, guardians uh, as they're coming to Doriath uh, at the beginning of the poem. Then he bade them drink and drew from his belt a flask of leather full filled with wine that is bruised from the berries of the burning south. And the gnome folk know it, and the nation of the elves, and by long ways lead it to the lands of the north. Their baked flesh and bread from his wallet they had to their heart's joy. But their heads were mazed by the wine of Dorwinian that went in their veins, and they soundly slept on the soft needles of the tall pine trees that towered above. It's wine that's clearly designed to be uh, consumed out of smaller bowls, apparently, uh, than they were than they were using. And of course, you will no doubt recognize the wine of Dorwinian, uh, which is by that same name the wine that put uh, the butler and the captain of the guard out cold uh, on the table in the Hobbit, so that Bilbo could steal uh, the keys and rescue the dwarves and stuff them into barrels, uh, while Galleon the only named, the only elf who gets a first name uh, uh, in The Hobbit, um, uh, and, uh, and the captain of the guard, uh, Snooze. Um, exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, this is uh, uh, the wine of Darwinian, a.k.a. the good stuff. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, that uh, the butler and the, his friend, the captain, have a little party to themselves down there in the basement, right? Um, exactly. So, here we have um, <clears throat> here we have uh, 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 an element, right, which has been lifted 
clearly straight out of this poem. Remember, this poem predates the, well, predates the publication of The Hobbit by more than ten years, but it predates the writing of The Hobbit still by, I mean, dates are a little bit uncertain here, but ten-ish years, between, somewhere between five and ten years uh, before he was writing The Hobbit, he wrote this. So, there's no question of where, you know, it, uh, uh, you know, which came first, or what influenced what, right? It's clear that the wine of Dorwinian is sort of a, a native uh, a, a native citizen of the lay of the children of Hurin, right? And that when he was writing The Hobbit, and he gets to that moment in Mirkwood, he lifts this out, and he puts it in The Hobbit, right? So, um, there's, um, uh, there's, there's another passage that I found, and it's way even more interesting, because that one, um, in the wine of Dorwinian, on the one hand, it's sort of merely a name, right? The association of Dorwinian, uh, the name of Dorwinian with, uh, with this wine, though we do get a little bit more than the name, right? In that the, the strong correlation between this particular wine and slumber, right? Um, that it, 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 there's a pretty strong correlation now between drinking the wine of Dorwinian and getting knocked out. Um, so, uh, so that's, okay, it's more even than a little bit than the name. But this one, to me, is even more interesting. Remember, there is a big emphasis when they're going through Tower Nufuin, um, be- they being Beleg first, and then Beleg uh, and Flinding, as they're going to seek Turin. And the wood, as it's described, it is a dark wood in which it's incredibly easy to lose your way, such that even the orcs are afraid of it, right? So it is not just a, this is not just wild country that they're going through. They're not merely afraid that they're going to be seen and captured by the orcs. Um, there is something about this forest that makes it dangerous, even for the orcs who are going through in order to bring Turin and, 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 and I think, other captives back home uh, to, uh, uh, to Angband. Here's part of the description of the wood. Never dawning night was netted clinging in the black branches of the beetling trees, oppressed by pungent pinewood's odors, and drowsed with dreams as the darkness thickened, he strayed steerless. The stars were hid, and the moon mantled. Their magic foundered in the gathering glooms. Their goblins even, whose deep eyes drill the darkness shadows, bewildered wandered, who the way forsook to grope in the glades. Their grayly loomed, of girth unguessed in growing ages, the topless trunks of trees enchanted. The, that fathomless fold by folk of Elfland is Tower Nafuin, the trackless forest of deadly nightshade, dreadly named. See the elements, right? Tower Nufuin uh, in the Silmarillion doesn't hit you over the head. I mean, when you're reading the descriptions of Tower Nufuin, um, in which is what the, you know, which is this wood um, in the in the published Silmarillion, when you're reading, it's, it you know, you don't read that, and you're like, wow, Mirkwood, right? Reading this here, it's clearly Mirkwood, right? I mean, you've got the, even the business about not leaving the path is there, right? How even the orcs, if they, if they, if they forsake the way, right? They, they have a road that goes through it, but if they forsake the way, they're going to end up groping in the glades um, amongst these gigantic trees, right? And we get some descriptions of the of the gigantic... He doesn't... I don't think he calls them topless, right? But they're anyway, they're huge, right? Huge ancient forest, um, which is so full of... Not only of... It's, it's not just of darkness, right? But there is a magic... You know, their magic foundered in the gathering glooms, right? Such that even the night eyes of the orcs cannot penetrate the darkness, which is more than darkness, that lurks 
in Mirkwood. Um, and of course, you may remember that from the early days, the giant spiders have been associated with this region as well. This is where the brood of Ungoliant lives. Um, uh, that Baron has to fight his way through. Uh, that's a that's a very early feature of these woods as well. So, okay, so here are two examples where it seems pretty clear when we get to the Hobbit where he's gotten this stuff, right? Now, that this is where I want to pause for a second to kind of think about the bigger interpretive implications of this, um, because I think we have to be really careful. Um, it's always rewarding as a Tolkien reader, and when, you know, going through and reading these early works, to come across little nuggets like this and say, oh, hey, look, this is the original Mirkwood, right? This is where Mirkwood came from. And that's true. This does seem to be the original Mirkwood. This does seem to be the place where the ideas that he is going to to sort of fill out in his depiction of Mirkwood have their origin, right? Or at least are sort of first represented within his own story. Um... I'm not trying to take anything away from that. The question is, what do we do with that? Right? The question is, so what? Okay. Um, it's tempting, for instance, um, to say, "Hey, doesn't this suggest that Bilbo is walking around in Beleriand?" Right? Could this? That is, when he wrote the Hobbit, is he? I mean, you've got there's these overlaps with this world. Does this show that? The Hobbit is really taking place within the Silmarillion, with the world of the Silmarillion. Right now, um, this you know this is linked to a question that I that I often get asked is um, is the Arkans you know could the Arkenstone be a Silmaril? Right, I often get asked that question. Um, could it be like you know Mithros's Silmaril returned? Um, you know because the, the Arkenstone and the Silmaril sound really similar. Yeah, they do sound really similar. Is it a Silmaril? No, no, it's not a Silmaril. Um, but but it's not as simple as that, right? No, the Arkenstone isn't a Silmaril. Just like, no, Mirkwood isn't Tower Nifuin. And the wine of Dorwinian isn't the wine of Dorwinian. Um, let me explain what I mean. Um... We can't be too quick and too simplistic in making connections like this. That is, okay, Bilbo is not literally walking around in Beleriand. Um, it is no coincidence, however, that the world that Tolkien imagined when he wrote The Hobbit is very similar, uh, and in fact, in, in, in particular places, identical to the, play, the, the, the world that he imagined when he was writing these other stories. Um, he uses these concepts, the concepts that he has thought of in his other stories that he had written before, <clears throat> and he brings them out. In the, you know, he, he populates the Hobbit with them uh, as he's going through. So, the Woodland Elven King, right? The Elven King of the Woodland Elves, whose palace, you know, his whole setup there looks a lot like Thingol and Doriath, a lot like Thingol and Doriath, right? Does that mean that 
in 19, like 30, 31, 33, you know, um, all through 37, right? While he's writing The Hobbit in that initial, you know, before he went on to revise and come up with The Word of the Rings and fill out the world and the connections differently, when he was sitting there penning chapter 9, uh, you know, in the early 30s, was the Elven King actually Thingol? Again, like, is Bilbo in Beleriand, right? My answer to that is no. No, I don't believe that. I don't believe that that's the case. Is the Arkenstone a Silmaril? No, the Arkenstone is not a Silmaril. That doesn't mean they're unconnected. In fact, even the names are identical. Um, Christopher Tolkien made a couple references to the fact uh, in the commentary to the Lay of the Children of Hurin here that Tolkien had made Anglo-Saxon translations of Elvish Right, it's like you know. This says this is like uh, you know. You know you're a philologist geek when not only do you write long passage of things in languages that you yourself made up, but that you then translate them into Anglo-Saxon. Right, that that's 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 when you know you are a hardcore uh, language geek. Um, and uh, anyway, so Tolkien did that, and it was part of the whole frame concept of the stories of uh, of the elves being handed down to like Alf Winna of England, the Anglo-Saxon guy, um, who uh, who 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 you know, of course, translated them into Anglo-Saxon. So there's this you know huge sections of Anglo-Saxon stuff composed by Tolkien, which is translations from the Elvish into Anglo-Saxon. When he did that, when he translated Elvish lore into Anglo-Saxon, the Anglo-Saxon word he used to translate the word Silmaril was Earkenstana, um, which means pretty much holy stone, holy gem, holy jewel. Um, and uh, so I, it, that's obviously, I say casually, um, uh, uh, obviously where the name Arkenstone comes from. I mean, it's just like a, a, a sort of a modernization of the Anglo-Saxon Arkenstana. So, not, it doesn't just look like the Silmaril. It's not just that he describes it in some of the exact same terms that he describes the Silmaril. It's that the name that he gives it is derived from the Anglo-Saxon name that he gave to the Silmaril. So, am I arguing that they, the Arkenstone and the Silmaril have nothing to do with each other, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain? No, of course not. Of course they have something to do with each other. But, I don't think, I strongly disbelieve that you can make that final step to say they are the same, right? He intended the Arkenstone to be the Silmaril of Mithros, which has reemerged. That suggests an identity, a, 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 a contiguousness between the story of the Hobbit and these other stories that I frankly disbelieve existed at all. Um, what instead I believe to be happening here is rampant recycling by... Tolkien, okay? Um, he even uses names of things. Like, it's not just that he uses these things like the Elven King or the Arkenstana, right? Um, and, uh, uh, and, 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 uh, you know, but he, you know, he doesn't call it a Silmaril and he doesn't call him Thingol or Tinwillant or, uh, whatever else he wanted to name him. Um, it's not just that he does that. There are even, um, names that he uses 
in The Hobbit, like Gondolin and Elrond, right? Um, but that doesn't prove that they're the same. And it might seem like I'm being simply perverse in saying, the fact that The Hobbit refers to Gondolin doesn't prove that it's actually Gondolin he's referring to, right? Or just because we meet Elrond in Chapter 3 doesn't mean that the stories are really connected, right? It's like a coincidence that, like, he met a dude named Elrond, right? Um, except that turns out to be exactly how Tolkien himself explained it. Look at this. Um, I keep mentioning that I've been rereading the letters, which is fun, and I should obviously do more often because I've been coming across all these things I forgot about. He's talking about The Hobbit here. The passage in chapter 3, relating him, that is Elrond, of course, to the half-elven of the mythology, was a fortunate accident, due to the difficulty of constantly inventing good names for new characters. I gave him the name Elrond casually, but as this came from the mythology, Elrond and Elros, the two sons of Eärendil, I made him half-elven. Only in the Lord was he identified with the son of Eärendil and so the great-grandson of Luthien and Beren, a great power and a ring-holder. You see that? I mean, let's, 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 uh, let's, let's pause for a second over that. In chapter 3, when we get to Rivendell, and we meet this dude named Elrond, right? Why is he named Elrond? He is not named Elrond because he is the character Elrond, whom he had already invented in his mythology. He's not. He's demonstrably not. You can tell he isn't because how he is described in chapter 3 of The Hobbit does not match what we know of Elrond from the mythology. So there's already internal evidence to show that this is not the Elrond that you're looking for, right? So why did he call him Elrond? Because he had the name sitting around. Right? He's got a guy. He, he, you know, he, he says, like, it's the, the difficulty of constantly inventing good names. Tolkien had a high, high standards for names, right? So he, um, he, uh, um, he says, all right, I've got this character, you know, the master of Rivendell, the keeper of the last homely house, right, in chapter three. I'll call him Elrond. And since I'm naming him Elrond, the heck, I'll make him half elven, right? Because Elrond was half, so it's kind of like a nod to the other Elrond that's in his mythology, right? But he says he named him Elrond casually, right? Without the intention to identify them. And then explicitly says, only in the Lord of the Rings did he decide, no, no, okay, I'm going to actually say that that Elrond in The Hobbit is the Elrond. They're actually going to be the same character. In The Hobbit, that wasn't the case. And again, the same thing is true of Gondolin. When you look at the th- look at everything, we'll go back to chapter three of the Hobbit and look at everything that is said about Gondolin. You go to the go- story of the fall of Gondolin in the Book of Lost Tales. You go to the story of Gondolin in the published Silmarillion. You go to the bits of the st- story of Gondolin that we get in uh, Unfinished Tales, and what do you see? A story that does not match what we're told about this ancient city called Gondolin um, within the Hobbit. They're not the same. Yes, he's using all these things. Yes, these things are coming up, but why? Why? We have to remember. It is so important to keep in mind that 
Tolkien had no idea that any of this stuff was ever going to get published. In fact, he had every reason to think that no, this, none of this stuff was ever going to see the light of day. In fact, we have to remember that some of these things that we're reading in the History of Middle-Earth uh, series by Christopher Tolkien are things which Tolkien himself may have actually forgotten about over time. I mean, Christopher's dredging some of this stuff up, written in odd places, and stuff like that. Uh, I'm not saying that Tolkien, you know, would be like, what? The alliterative children of Horan? No idea what you're talking about, right? Obviously, he will have remembered that he wrote this poem, but um, but again, this is not... Um, there is much evidence that Tolkien set this stuff aside and didn't look at it for decades, okay? But anyway, so, so, so again, my point is not only is he not trying to make an explicit connection back to this other material in The Hobbit, this other material, this, the, these other writings of his have practically, and at least temporarily, fallen off a cliff, right? Fallen into a black hole, they're gone. Right, they're in a drawer somewhere, uh, and but what remains are the ideas, right? Like those cool names. He's still got that name Elrond is is right there, right? He's got he needs a new name. Oh, he's got a good name, right? Um, and he's prepared to pull it out and use it because it's an awesome name, and it's just exists in that thing which is probably never going to get published, and so so might as well use it, right? Um, Bilbo and the dwarves are coming to... They have to pass through a great forest, which is very... It's right there, right? He's got this concept that he that he fleshed out to some extent in the alliterative Children of Hurin, right? This this uh, this place of of terrifying and impenetrable dark, uh, which would even conf- you know, sort of confuse the mind of those um, who um, who 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 went in there. You know, he's he needs to uh, put the captain of the guard uh, and the butler out of commission, right? I've got the the wine of Darwinian, right? Oh yeah, the wine of Darwinian, which uh, uh, which which mazes your brain and and puts you to sleep. Yeah, okay, yeah. Now let's pull that out, right? Um, I, I, there's he's going to meet elves in the wood. Um, they you know, have a king who lives in these series of underground caves right across a river behind a magic gate. Yeah, I, 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 he's got all that, right? So he uses it. He, he, he's not, not going to let it just wither away and go to waste, right? He brings it out um, and uses it. But that doesn't mean that the Hobbit is taking place within Beleriand, that he even sees it as part of his mythology. It has long been my reading that Tolkien is not intended... When he wrote The Hobbit, he was not participating in the act of expanding his mythology. That The Hobbit is meant to be a separate story, but it's a separate story in which he is sort of freely drawing from his own um, sort of arsenal. I shouldn't use a military term for that. That seems inappropriate. Um, uh, I... I don't know, collection, at least. But, um, uh, toolbox? Yeah, I was thinking of toolbox, Erica. Uh, something like that. Anyway, something perhaps a little more just, you know, uh, or, or pay, perhaps, uh, uh, choosing from the, from his imaginative, you know, from his imaginative palette as he is, uh, as he is painting. Um, that's a little more niggle-oriented. Um, yeah, exactly. Paint box or crayon box, Erica. I think that, that, that is better. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Sarah King asks, did the, Ar- did the Aragorn-Arwen romance come about then because he didn't know whether Baron and Luthien would be published? <sighs> yes and no. Um, by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings, Sarah, um, he has very concrete plans to publish the Silmarillion. In fact, he had been engaging in a standoff with Alan and Unwin in which he was attempting to sort of compel the agreement to publish the Silmarillion um, in tandem with the Lord of the Rings. He wanted to bring them all out together. He really, really, really wanted them all to be brought out together. Um, And he uh, is from, like, the late 50s through his death in his letters. He is continually telling inquirers, um, my my mythology of the first age is just about to come out. I'm, I'm finishing it up and it's just about to come out. Right. Um, so by that time, Sarah, he did anticipate and in fact strongly, strongly, strongly wanted uh, the publication of the, of the Silmarillion stuff. But that's in the late 50s. Right. Not in the early 30s. Um, not when he was writing or when he had published The Hobbit, which is why The Hobbit is in such a different situation. This is why, by the time we get to The Lord of the Rings, many of those elements which were recyclings in The Hobbit have either been sidelined and don't get mentioned again, like the Arkenstone, which is not ever even alluded to obliquely (laughs) in The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, He's shoved that aside. Or they they get... Reinterpreted, like Thranduil, right? The character of Thranduil is born because we have this woodland elven king and we're not going to make him... He's not going to be recycled Thingol anymore because we want to keep Thingol alive, you know, in, for Silmarillion purposes. Um, so we're just going to make Thranduil a separate character who's, who's parallel, no question, to Thingol, but, but of course, obviously not the same. Um, so by the time we get there, Sarah, he's, he's already... He's doing parallels... Some of those recyclings he's making into parallels, other things he's... So so the Aragorn-Arwen thing, um, that's not a kind of, well, I'm never going to get Baron and Luthien out there, so I might as well do Aragorn and Arwen. It's more a deliberate link or even... Uh, it would be totally unjustified to call it a teaser. Um, but he's he's deliberately establishing a parallel not because he thinks Baron and Luthien will never see the light of day, but because he expects them to, so that it will it will set. And this is one of the reasons why he was very strongly... Um, he thought the Lord of the Rings was going to suffer from not having the Silmarillion. Um, that's why he, he not only wanted it published with it, he wanted it published first. Um, it's a really fun what-if uh, in Tolkien's literary career. Um, of course, the most common... What if games to play with Tolkien's literary career are what if he had finished this work or what if he had finished that work or you know what what how would the fall of Arthur had ended uh, with the fall of Arthur but anyway never mind um why would he uh, or you know how would the, what would he have done with the fall of Gondolin had he completed the tour poem he was doing later on anyway so you know there there are all these you know those that, but but here's a here's a really interesting what if question what if Alan and Unwin had said to him, two thumbs up, let's go. Bring out the Silmarillion, we'll do that. Silmarillion first, right? So get me a Silmarillion we can publish in 1954, and we'll, 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 we'll print that puppy up and throw it out there, and we'll, um, um, we'll uh, 
then we'll do the Fellowship of the Ring after that, and 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 off we go. Um, I would have been fascinated to see what the Silmarillion had looked like. Um, it seems like he was. He kept saying to publishers, "It's practically done. I've like I'm so there. Like I've got this stuff ready to go. Like you, you know, say the word, and I'll get you a Silmarillion manuscript." In retrospect, it seems like that was a little over-optimistic on Tolkien's part. So, A, what would he have produced exactly? What would a 1954 Silmarillion have looked like exactly? Um, And then, B, how might the course of literary history have been changed? Would anyone have read it? Would it have affected the reading of The Lord of the Rings? Um, And if so, how? Anyway... It's, um, it's, uh, yeah, Nancy says maybe we would never have gotten the Lord of the Rings in this scenario either. That also seems quite likely if the two of, if, if he had gotten his way, which was that the Lord of the Rings would only be published if they agreed to publish the Silmarillion as well. Um, and then what had happened had been what has happened many times before in Tolkien's life, where he's supposed to deliver this thing and then it doesn't come and doesn't come and doesn't come for years and years and years. Um, Perhaps the Lord of the Rings never sees the light of day either. That does seem quite a likely possibility, Nancy. Um, Anyhow, um, there's obviously a lot more that we can uh, say about all these things, but I, I wanted to pause and talk about this because I think this is, again, this is something with wide applicability for our reading of all of these early materials, whenever you see those... Well, it's not an echo. Whenever you see that thing of which, the you know, a reference that you're familiar with, especially in The Hobbit, even in The Lord of the Rings, um, is, is, is an echo. When you see him recycling stuff, um, what do we do with that? What do we make of that? How do we understand that in, in, in sort of in the course of, of, of Tolkien's mind and, and work? I think it's a really important point. But let's talk about version two of the way of the children of Hurin now. Um, so, okay, we saw some pretty remarkable trends forming in version one, right? We were we've talked about what kind of character Turin was uh, in that poem, and how I, I I think, and several of you were agreeing with me that he is the most attractive and appealing character in this version than in any other of the Turin versions that Tolkien ever completed. Um, and we were talking a little bit about what kind of tragedy this seems to be shaping up to be. Um, And again, one in which it seems to me very noteworthy that Turin himself has made the fewest number of completely boneheaded decisions um, that we see any version of Turin making, and that to me has a profound impact on the pathos of the story. Um, The story of boneheaded Turin making things hard for himself <laughs> and for everybody else is still tragic and it's still moving but um seeing this turin the turin who loves so strongly and so loyally his mother first and uh and beleg second and flinding third and finduelas fourth um but how he is doomed to lose everyone that he has loved um, and it just the direction in which that seems to be going, um, I, you know, we, we were talking about this a little bit last time about how very, very painful that um, 
is I mean I, 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 I'm not sure I really can imagine what the suicide scenes you know of Neonor and Turin would look like at the end of this story but um, anyway so the question then is having seen all these things in version 1 what do we see in version 2 remember version 2 Christopher explains is not um, and I hope by the way that nobody thinks I'm trying to be I, 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 I would hate to be taken to be disrespectful of Christopher Tolkien by the fact that I usually just refer to him by his first name you know Chris uh, says you know that um, I don't mean to be I, I merely intend to differentiate if I call him you know Professor Tolkien or something like that uh, you know nobody would know which one I was referring to so I call him Christopher just to differentiate him from his father um, anyway Christopher remember says that um, version 2 is not written years later, right? So, when we're reading version 2 and comparing it to version 1, we have to remember the situation. It's not So he hasn't put version 1 aside and come back to it three years later and been like, oh, I think I'll have another crack at this poem, but no, no, I'm going to go back and start it again at the beginning. That's, of course, a very Tolkien move, but that's not what happened, right? He's going back in the middle. He's gotten up to, to, to where we got up to Finduilas, right? And then he's saying, okay, now, I want to. I want to go back and start again at the beginning. Um, and remember, Christopher even suggests that he suspects that version two was being written while version one was still progressing. Right, um, which suggests um, the conclusion that I therefore draw from this. Version two, or it's not. This is not a later version of the poem. Rather, it is. I would suggest a fuller version of, or sort of a cleaner version of what Tolkien felt the poem he had been writing was growing into as it was being written. Right, and I think we've all had that kind of experience. Right, when we're. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're a creative writer. Uh, you've you've almost certainly had this experience, um, but even in, in in many other different kinds of projects, right? When you you start out with something and you have a particular vision or idea of what it is and what it's going to be, but then as you get into it, you realize like, wow, this is really this has really grown into something quite different than what I originally thought. Well, one of the consequences of that is that the bit you wrote at the very beginning, when it looked very different to you in your mind, probably doesn't fit with the rest of the poem, right? Um, like, for instance, say you were writing a, a really long story, and you started it off with, like, a funny little anecdote about, like, hobbits going to a big birthday party, and there were, like, lots of inside jokes and, like, it, you know, people, like, a, you know, notes making fun of other people attached to joke presents and, and uh, uh, and you know, lots of, like, funny fireworks and, and people behaving uh, ridiculously. And then even it still continued that way for a while, right? And you've got, um, you take out some of the stuff maybe, but you've still got thinking foxes and stuff like that. But then, you know, it's it, it kind of grows into something quite different, right? Maybe you would want to go back and reconcile the, or maybe you choose not to totally change the beginning. You know, you can go either way on this. But Tolkien, in this poem, seems to have been, um, seems to have decided where the poem has gone, what it has grown into, seems to be different enough from where he started that he wants to go back and redo it, right? He wants to, 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 to see the beginning of this poem, you know, see this poem from the beginning 
in sort of the new vision, the new version of this poem. That at least is... My, perhaps there was a different reason why he just decided while still in the early stages of the story to be like, ah, heck, I'm going to go back and start it again. Maybe there was a different reason. But um, but that's based on what... Accepting what Christopher has told us about what he can piece together about the manuscript history, that seems to me the most plausible explanation of what's going on. So, therefore, when we look at version 2... The question is, so what has the poem grown into, right? When he goes back, what sorts of things does he do differently in the poem? <clears throat> um, which I sort of, which would I would then take to reflect this new, this newer version, this newer vision for what this poem is meant to be. So, when we go back and look, what's the very first thing we notice? he's written an entirely new opening. And not only has he changed the words of the opening, he's given us a completely different kind of opening. This poem now begins with an invocation, which it did not do before. Remember, it began right with Hurin in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Right? That's how version 1 begins. In version 2, we get this. As always, please <clears throat> make observations as... Uh, uh, as I'm reading, and, and as we go on, I'm interested to hear what you notice about this. <clears throat> Ye gods who girt your guarded realms with moveless pinnacles, mountains pathless, or shrouded shores sheer uprising of the Bay of Fairy on the borders of the world. Ye men unmindful of the mirth of yore, wars and weeping in the worlds of old, of Morgoth's might remembering naught. Lo, hear what elves with ancient harps, lingering forlorn in lands untrodden, fading faintly down forest pathways, in shadowy isles on the shadowy seas, sing still in sorrow of the son of Hurin, how his webs of doom were woven dark with menial sorrow, names most mournful. Okay, let's take this in parts. Lines one through four. One sentence at a time. Sentence one. What is sentence one? What's happening in those first four lines? What do you see? Yeah, Erica, he's addressing the gods. Ye gods. Second person. That's important. Right? Wait, who? Who are the gods? Who are we talking about? Who are we talking about, and how is he talking about them? Talking about the Valar, definitely, definitely, he's the Valar. Um, ye gods who girt your guarded realms with moveless pinnacles, mountains pathless, or shrouded shores sheer uprising of the Bay of Fairy on the borders of the world. Notice what that sentence doesn't have a verb. That's what that sentence doesn't have. <laughs> Ye gods, <clears throat> don't do anything. Um, he's just invoking them. He's talking about them and what he is, how he is describing them. 
there are lots of things you could say about the Valar, right? He could, for instance, have said, ye gods who have shaped and formed the lands and the seas and, and uh, you know, called all creatures as they, you know, that he could have talked about the the role of the of the Valar and the subcreation of the world and the ye gods who sang the music with Iluvatar in the beginning, etc., 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 right? No, ye gods who girt your guarded realms with moveless pinnacles. You gods over there behind the walls you have erected between yourselves and the rest of the world, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm talking to you. Okay. So, and again, they don't do anything. It's not part of a real, like a regular sentence, right? He's just invoking them, but in the second person. He's speaking to them. Then, who else is he speaking to? He seems to be, in a sense, declaring the, uh, the, the, the verb. Yeah, good, exactly. Sarah Lagarde is absolutely right. The implied verb, eventually, is here. Line eight. Lo, here. Um, exactly, yeah. Um, the suggestion, though we get exclamation points which make it sound like the end of a sentence, um, it certainly breaks those up, right? Those two, like the first four lines and then the, uh, the next three lines uh, are sort of a unit uh, there. They're, they're a syntactical unit, but not a full sentence. Uh, right, Sarah? You're exactly right. Um, the gods are supposed to hear... He's asking the gods to hear, you know, the ones behind the pathless mountains or shrouded shores, sheer uprising. Um, uh, who else is meant to hear? The men, Nancy, exactly. Ye men unmindful of the mirth of yore, wars and weeping in the worlds of old. I, I don't think that's meant to be examples of the mirth of yore, you know unmindful of all the fun they used to have. You know, wars, weeping, Morgoth's might. It was awesome back in the day. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. Um, I, you know, we've got the mirth and the weeping, right? Um, men are unmindful of all those things. So wait, who? Who? Who are we talking about? That is to say, is it, does it mean us? Like modern people? That is to say, who's talking here? Who's speaking? The, the 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 narrative voice seems to me we're drawing attention to the narrative voice when we just jump in with Hurin, right? Um, you know, we're we're, we're, follow, we're, we're we jump in in Medea's rest uh, uh, with uh, Hurin and uh, uh, and the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. We're not asked to think about the narrator. Who's this narrator? Right? From what per- chronological perspective is this a person much later on remembering this ancient lore? Is this a, a surviving document from those days? Right? That question, we can ask that question, but the narrative frame doesn't itself demand it in version one. Here, when you've got somebody who's saying ye, right? Somebody who is addressing somebody else in the second person, you know, you gotta ask, who's talking? And so therefore, Who's he addressing? Even in the, um, even in that second, ye men unmindful. Does he mean me? Right, modern men. I mean, I'm kind of unmindful of the mirth of yore and the wars and weeping in the worlds of old. I mean, at least until you tell me. Um, uh, lo, 
Hear what elves with ancient harps, lingering forlorn in lands untrodden, fading faintly down forest pathways in shadowy isles on the shadowy seas, sing still in sorrow of the son of Hurin, how his webs of doom were woven dark with Nemeal sorrow, names most mournful. So this really is pretty much one sentence, this whole first 14 lines. But anyway, um, syntax. Ye gods, ye men, hear. Sarah Lagarde, I think you're totally right about that. Ye gods, ye men, hear what? What are they supposed to hear? Which, presumably, this song is supposed to tell us? What do they hear? Yeah, Erica, it's elves who remember the story, not men. That does seem to be important. What are they supposed to hear? Lo, hear what elves... Here with the elves, what? what? Where's the verb? Got it, Sarah King. Sing still, line 12. Lo, hear what elves sing still in sorrow. Everything that comes between is all describing the elves. Hear what elves? You know, the elves with ancient harps, the ones that are lingering forlorn in lands untrodden, you know, the ones that are fading faintly down forest pathways in shadowy aisles on the shadowy seas, those elves, right? Lo, hear what those elves sing still in sorrow of the son of Hurin. Wait, what what do they sing of the son of Hurin? You know, how his webs of doom were woven dark with Nenial sorrow, names most mournful. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Ye gods, ye men unmindful, hear what the elves still sing of the son of Hurin and Nenial Nenial sorrow, names most dreadful. Now listen to my lay. I will sing to you the lay of the children of Hurin. That's what we're saying here, right? Um, But there's a lot that's contained and a lot of cues that we get in this uh, opening bit, right? Um, One thing to notice it would seem that the Book of Lost Tales premise is still alive, right? Um, Again, for those of you who did the Book of Lost Tales course with me will remember that the the fundamental premise of the Book of Lost Tales frame narrative is that um, the stories of the ancient days, uh, all these, you know, stories of Elva, and all all this material, right? All the stories of the ancient days are are told by the elves to a human wanderer who goes over to Elvenholm and who then brings the stories back and becomes the transmitter of them to humans, especially to English people, and that's how we get a native fairy mythology for England, right? Um, because it was handed down from elves to some human speaker who then transmits it to the rest of us and to posterity, and that's where we get it. Um, that premise seems to be the premise of this. Um, I don't think that we are to understand from this that the narrator is in fact an elf. Lo, hear what elves, lingering forlorn in lands untrodden, fading faintly down forest pathways. I think this is a human talking. Um, Hear what the elves say. Right? Um, And I don't... I, I would even say... 
you could you could say, well, hang on a second. Why would I conclude that the speaker is not an elf because he talks about the elves in the third person like this when he's just been talking about men in the third person? Ye men unmindful of the mirth of yore. Um, it seems to me the way that they're described is very different, right? That is, he is saying, on the one hand, of the elves, hear what elves, elves, and I've got to explain elves, right? I need to contextualize elves for my audience, right? Lingering forlorn in lands untrodden, fading faintly down forest pathways, those elves, right? Um, whereas with the men, he just emphasizes, I'm addressing men unmindful of the mirth of yore. This is a subset of men, right? Those of you who have not heard, those of you who know nothing about the ancient times, you will want to hear this, right? Um, and he doesn't describe what men are, right? Um, you know, he doesn't say, you know, ye uh, ye men, and hey, we're alliterating on M, we've got a perfect opportunity, right? Ye men, uh, the mortal ones, right? And explaining how short is their time in the world and everything. He doesn't do any of that. He's just like, hey, those you know, I know that many of the men don't know any of this stuff. That's why I'm going to sing about it, to share it with you, and to explain it to you. Um, uh, but um, anyway, I, I'm not saying it's proven, but I think that uh, uh, the speaker here is a man, but again, we see it's a man saying, I heard this stuff from elves, right? Um, Hear what elves sing. I'm going to tell you what the elves still sing. Um, uh, Because I I heard it from them. Um, I think, if we go back to the very beginning, the invocation of the Valar shows already in those first four lines. This is not a modern narrator. It's not like the narrator that we get, not only in The Hobbit, but even in The Lord of the Rings. Um, The idea is not, this is a story that's being transmitted to it. This is a story, the frame of which is also ancient. Um, Whoever was the poet who wrote this down again, within the fictional frame, whoever was the poet who wrote this down, he also was ancient and very much closer to these events chronologically than we are. Um, a modern person, the, narr- the narrator of the Lord of the Rings would not address the Valar like this in his own person, right? Ye gods who girt your guarded realms, uh, hear what elves with ancient harps. He would not be saying that. Um, but this guy is. Um... Yeah, good. Tom points out that uh, um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's also a story long enough after the events for the men to have forgotten them. Yes, absolutely. Um, which is why they might be men unmindful, not just because they're generally oblivious, but because uh, so much time has passed. Um, so I, this, uh, there's more that we could say about this. There's a lot of really interesting stuff here, but merely the fact that he has the uh, impulse to add this kind of an invocation, this kind of an explicit frame, this kind of a of a, an almost implied frame narrative of the story. Um, it's a really important change, I think. Um, it's also sort of makes the whole thing more more epic, you know, more like an epic poem. Um, more in the epic tradition, um, which is a really vague thing to say, but um, 
we can see this uh, this sort of impulse, I think, um, being... Uh, um, you know, we can see moments in version 2 where we get a more overtly epic frame that is, again, places where the poem is drawing our attention to its own status as a narrative very differently than we saw in version 1. This is a, this is a brief example. It's just a couple lines that really jumped out at me. Um, but I think it, it, it's... So just to kind of show you what I'm talking about. Um, then the fame of the fights on the far marches was carried to the courts of the king of Doriath, and tales of Turin were told in his halls of the bond and brotherhood of Beleg the Ageless with the black-haired boy from the beaten people. Then the king called him to come before him, did orc raids lessen in the outer lands, ever and often unasked to hasten, to rest them and revel, and to raise a while in songs and lays and sweet music the memory of the mirth ere the moon was old, when the mountains were young in the morning of the world. Now, this is a statement, I mean, it's, 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 we're going to, you know, it's just saying they're going to sing songs and lays. These are the kinds of songs and lays they're going to sing. And they're going to sing about the morning of the world. But there's something in the cadence of the lines at that point. Um, in songs and lays and sweet music, the memory of the mirth ere the moon was old, when the mountains were young in the morning of the world. Um, something in the cadence here that just strikes me as different. This is a, a kind of modulation that I think is different from what we saw in version one. Um, we're being reminded here of the antiquity of these stories. Um, it just that the ending of that passage really sounds to me like something like we are now hearing this sort of dilation of the bard who is singing these things of these ancient days long after the fact. Um, and we, as listeners, are being reminded of the distance. Um, and, of course, it's happening while, within the story, the singers are singing of this ancient, distant past. Um, but, again, that kind of, uh, that kind of parallel. Um, yeah, Sarah King, that's a really interesting... Sarah King is in my poetry class. And uh, you're right, Sarah, there is a really interesting rhythm in the last line, perhaps that's one of the things that I'm thinking of. Um, that when the when the mountains were young in the morning of the world, um, it is anapestic tetrameter, Sarah, and it's a, it's di- the, the, then the fame of the fights on the far marches was carried to the courts of the king of Doriath. Um, when the mountains were young in the morning of the world. Um, it's like we're shifting into something a little bit more syllabic there. Again, just the, this, the patterns are different, um, uh, and I think uh, perhaps the, uh, the 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 rhythmic pattern of the line there, Sarah, is perhaps what's uh, what's making me pay particular attention to it. Um, but there are other sort of more uh, uh, more sort of obvious examples of ways in which. The tone and the scope of the narr- of the narration of the uh, um, uh, of the uh, um, of the description. I mean, it's it's it changes in scope. Let me show you what I mean. The description of Hurin in the battle. Right. This is where we started in version one. Did you notice how much more of it we got? And I mean, if you had to compare 
The description of Hurin in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears in version 1, and then, so version 2, compared back to version 1. What would you say Hurin's fight in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears was 45% more awesome in the second version? Uh, I mean, I'm going with 45%, an easy 45%, right? Um, For Hurin standing, storm unheeding, unbent in battle, with bitter laughter his axe wielded, as eagle's wings the sound of its sweep, swinging deadly, as livid lightning it leaped and fell, as toppling trunks of trees riven his foes had fallen. Thus fought he on, where blades were blunted, and in blood foundered the men of Mithrim. Thus a moment stemmed, with sad remnant, the raging surge of ruthless orcs, and the rear guarded, that Turgon the Terrible, towering in anger, a pathway clove with pale falchion from swirling slaughter. I mean, dang! We heard about the fact that Hurin helped you know, that he was able to hold the rear guard uh, and that he alone stayed true and that that was... I mean, he was awesome in the first version, but dang, I mean, that description is amazing. Unbent in battle with bitter laughter his axe wielded as eagle's wings the sound of its sweep swinging deadly as livid lightning it leaped and fell. Um, oh man, the power of the alliteration here, uh, the the uh, the the incredible imagery. Um, standing, he's he's unheeding the storm, and then he himself is like a storm as livid lightning. So, he, so he, he's amidst the storm, but his axe is the lightning striking in the storm, and his enemies are toppling like trees, like like lightning struck trees in the midst of the storm. So he may be in the middle of the storm, but he is unheeding the storm because he is the storm. <laughs> Right, I mean, oh man, and the and the and the and the 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 sort of the poignant irony of his axe being compared to eagles' wings. Even of course, in all of these early writings, the eagles are still associated with sudden deliverance, and his axe is to Turgon as the wings of eagles to bear him away, but not for him, right? Um, uh, and uh, you know, and the way you know the the, the kinds of uh, um, the way he manages the links that the alliteration forms here. His foes had fallen, thus fought he on. Um, so that the link into the next sentence, his foes had fallen, thus fought he on, springboarding into where blades were blunted, and in blood foundered the men of Mithrim. Right, so. We've got his valor, but then we've got the the death of all of you know all around him. The blades of his people are being blunted, and and notice the 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 suspense in a sense, right? Thus fought he on, where blades were blunted and in blood foundered. Wait, so doubtless the blades of the orcs were blunted, right, on his impenetrable armor and his axe is, like, was eventually foundered in blood, right? Which it kind of is what happened eventually. His axe was smoking in the troll guard of Gothmog, right? In the in the published Silmarillion. Um, but no, the men of Mithrim foundered, right? Um, so that description, we so we get this awesome description of his prowess in battle uh, and his valor 
And then that next sentence, which again makes it sound like we're going to get more of that, except, ooh, no, we're shifting to tragedy, right? As all of his men are dying around him. Um, thus, uh, and then we bring both of them together. Thus, a moment stemmed with sad remnant the raging surge of ruthless orcs. So, what is the valor of Hurin? What does it accomplish? Stemming for a moment the raging surge of, ru- of ruthless orcs. Um, only his sad remnant, the sad remnant of his people, what their sacrifice accomplished was a moment's stemming of the tide of the raging surge of ruthless orcs. Um, so that Turgon the Terrible, towering in anger, a pathway clove from swirling slaughter. Um, yeah, good. Josiah McCoy says in the first version, Turgon with his pale falchion, which was there already, exactly, is the main hero of the escape. But in this version, Hurin is the hero, and Turgon is somewhat demoted. Yeah, I mean, it's just... I, I, I mean, I don't even know, Josiah, if I would go that far. I mean, Turgon, he's still terrible and towering in anger, and he's still cleaving a path from swirling slaughter. So, I mean, I, I don't think Turgon's awesomeness has been reduced. Like, the absolute value of Turgon's awesomeness is not reduced, but Hurin's awesomeness has been elevated to such an extent that now, next to it, it seems like much less. But 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 you're absolutely right. The original version was... Turgon's valor in escaping, and Hurin was caught. Um, and, you know, again, he was valiant and everything. I'm not trying to take anything, anything away from his valor in the first version, but again, that's not where the that's not where the emphasis lay as much. Um, I do agree with uh, with with Josiah there. So, no, oh, no, I think I'm going to bump it up. I 45 percent more awesome. I'm going with. Uh, I think I'm going with closer to 70 percent added awesomeness. Uh, in this uh, in this version, and Hurin and Morgoth. I mean, man, right? So he was captured before, and and Morgoth was like, "Hey, I can make use of this guy, right? I got to get to Turgon somehow. I got to get to Turgon. This whole thing was worthless if Turgon escaped. That was my whole point. I needed to kill Turgon, and I didn't do it. Uh, pretty disappointing. Um, I mean, causing unnumbered tears is fun and everything, but it's just not the same if Turgon gets away. So, uh, so here's this guy. I'm gonna, um, I'll, I'll try to threaten him and I'll try to bribe him, and I hope I can suborn him into working for me so that he'll uh, he will uh, betray uh, Turgon and 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 help me, uh, you know, sort of recoup my losses here from this failed thing. Um, but it wasn't like special, you know. There was uh, that is. It was special in that Hurin defied him, um, that that Hurin did not give in to Morgoth. But Morgoth's attentions weren't all that. Spe- you know, like we said there wasn't that much at stake. There was, there were, there were no sort of theological implications. He was just Hurin was was just remaining steadfast in the face of both threats and offered bribes from Morgoth. Here. O ruinous one, by fear unfettered I have fought thee long, nor dread thee now, nor thy demon slaves, fiends and phantoms, thou foe of gods. His dark tresses, drenched and tangled, that fell o'er his face, he flung backward, in the eye he looked of the evil lord. Since that day of dread, to dare his glance, has no mortal man had might of soul. There the mind of Hurin, in a mist of dark, neath gaze unfathomed, groped and foundered. Yet his heart yielded not, nor his haughty pride. It's not just that Hurin resists, right? He, it, 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 even, 
even his act of def- his simple act of defiance is awesome. He's the last one, the last mortal man ever to stare down Morgoth, ever to look in his eyes, ever to dare to look Morgoth in the eyes, right? Um, and we see his again his resistance turn to defiance and insult more profound than we got before. He was a little insulting before, but again, he's a little, he's he's much more. And then, but but the, but also the tragedy that we already see there, right? His his heart didn't yield, but his mind is in a mist of dark. His mind in a mist of dark groped and foundered, right? His mind is influenced, right? His mind is uh, is impacted. By the way, you know, does does it's not broken, um, but it's uh, dazzled by the will of Morgoth. Yet his heart yielded not. Um, Arthur is uh, wondering about the the phrase "haughty pride." That that seems less positive than we usually think of him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but. But he's an epic hero, man. You ever met a humble epic hero? Right? Talk to Beowulf. Talk to Achilles. Talk to Aeneas. Aeneas is probably the most retiring of the three, but but still, I mean, you know, it's... Um, yeah, Sarah Lagarde says, is this northern pride? Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, Sigurd, not humble either, right? Um, I don't think that... it's. Uh, but Arthur, I hear you. It's the word haughty, right? Um, uh, haughty seems... Um, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. No, that's that's what I thought you meant, Arthur. Um, I don't think it's entirely a bad thing, but I, but Arthur, I don't think your impulse here is wrong. Um, looking into the eyes of Morgoth was a bra- very brave thing to have done, and no one else has had the temerity to do it ever since. But that doesn't make it smart. Um, it was probably a mistake to do that. Um, a mistake for which he will pay later on. Um, so, Arthur, I think it's quite possible to read that line as saying, yeah, he, uh, you know, this, this perhaps is the kind of pride that sort of goes before a fall in that sense. Um, yeah, <laughs> Sarah King says, though to be fair, Hurin had had a pretty bad day. True, true. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Tom Hillman says, an epic hero confronts his enemy with his resume. He tells his enemy who he has to deal with. Right, exactly, Tom. Um, uh, now, of course, this is not Hurin speaking, but the narrator describing him, right? So, but, but, but yeah, like I said, it's, it's an epic hero thing, right? There's uh, uh, pride is not uh, an automatically horrible thing. But, uh, but yeah, his defiance. Um, sorry for the Moby Dick quote. Uh, and it's a Moby Dick quote, not a Wrath of Khan quote. Uh, anyway, um, but look where he goes after this. Hurin, that is, not Khan. Then Hurin, hanging in hate, answered, Canst not learn of thy lore when thou lookst on a foe, O Bauglier unblessed? This is after the bribery attempt. 
Bray no longer of the things thou hast thieved from the three kindreds. In hate I hold thee. Thou art humbled indeed, and thy might is minished, if thy murderous hope and cruel counsels on a captive sad must wait on a weak and weary man. To the hosts of hell his head then he turned. Let thy foul banners go forth to battle, ye Balrogs and orcs. Let your black legions go seek the sweeping sword of Turgon. Through the dismal dales you shall be driven wailing, like startled starlings from the stooks of wheat. Minions miserable of base master, of, sorry, minions miserable of master base, your doom dread ye, dire disaster. The tide shall turn, your triumph brief and victory shall vanish. I view afar the wrath of the gods roused in anger. Um... Yeah. Wow. Um, his defiance, not only of Morgoth, but of all the people of, uh, of, of Angman. Notice one of the things that he does, one of the kind of plot issues that he rectifies in the shifts from version 1 to version 2. In version 1, whenever anybody refers to Hurin, like, everybody knows... Okay, like it's obviously it's been on the front page of every single newspaper in Middle Earth that Hurin defied Morgoth and was put up on the pinnacle, right, and cursed by him. Everybody knows this. Like Flinding has heard it, the people in Nargothron have heard it, right? Everybody knows this. How did they know why do they know this? By what means was this communicated, right? That's never stated. Again, Flinding had been a captive, so like maybe there are rumors, right? But but again, it's never it's never st- and how on earth did Oradreth hear about it, right? B- prior to Flinding's return, um, but we get that question answered in version two. Did you notice that, right? This is one of two times that he he gets paraded before like everybody in Angband, right? Hurin's uh, confrontation with Morgoth and his refusal of Morgoth and his punishment, and therefore his punishment by Morgoth, are explicitly made a very public spectacle. And through this known, not only to everybody in Angband, um, but spread everywhere else as well. Um, so that, 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 that sort of element of Hurin being made into a very public spectacle. But of course, that had to happen. Um, Morgoth needed to make sure that what happened to Hurin was published far and wide because Hurin's defiance of him um, was uh, very public as well. Um, But again, it's not just his defiance being made public. He goes further, Hurin does, right? And um, makes a prophecy addressed not just to Morgoth, but to all of the hosts of hell. Right, all of the hosts of Angband, ye Balrogs and Orcs, ye of course being the second person plural, all ye Balrogs and Orcs, go seek the sweeping sword of Turgon. Uh, I hope that works out well for you. Right? Let's see. Let's see what happens. Um, don't forget. And again, this will be more familiar to the people who read the Book of Lost Tales. Um, Turgon is. This is still in the period of time when Turgon was meant to play in in, in, in Tolkien's plans as we know them uh, at this time. Turgon is in fact going to be the instrument of the downfall of Morgoth. 
that Turgon does in fact have the power to march forth, march forth into battle and beat Morgoth and his armies. Um, Turgon has been prophesied to be the doom of Morgoth. That's why his escape is such a big deal. That's why at the end of the, the uh, Battle of Unnumbered Tears, um, Morgoth is standing there at the beginning of this poem saying, Dang it! It didn't work! Right? The whole point was to get Turgon and everybody else escaped. Right? Or everybody else died, but he escaped. Pointless. Right? Um, he didn't care about killing the other people. He wanted Turgon dead because he was the one who was predicted um, to, uh, uh, to, to kill him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, just so anyway, th- this, um, you know, I view from afar the wrath of the gods roused in anger. Um, I said that one of the things that really strikes me about the confrontation between Hurin and Morgoth in version 1 is its lack of theological implication, right? That is, it's... Um, he just resists temptation, laughs at temptation, really, um, in version 1. Here he's saying, you are nothing, right? You are... Uh, um, you are weak. You've shown yourself by your attempt to suborn me here um, uh, to be weak and pathetic and uh, you know you you are you're a, a runaway you know we can see that the things that are going to be put into Hurin's mouth later on right when he's called a runaway slave um, you know a, a prisoner escaped uh, from the Valar right you know yeah you're just a, you're just an escaped Khan who's eventually going to be brought back right um, and uh, thrown into the clink for good. And Morgoth takes great exception to this kind of language. Um, Do you dare to question me, the master of Arda? Right? Um, the master of doom? I am the... He calls himself later on the master of doom. Um, that element we see coming in here, uh, in this second version. So, um, so again, very... Um, in very general terms, what do we see happening again? Thinking back to that original question I was asking, where is he taking version two? Right, um, when he looked back at the opening section of uh, version one, and he said to himself, "No, this doesn't really work anymore. I need, I need more. What does he need more? He needs more awesome, right? More epic." Um, uh, yeah, Sarah, exactly. Jail Crow of Mandos hits a pretty sensitive spot. Anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, uh, that was Feanor, of course, who struck a nerve in a similar kind of way. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, so so what does version 2 apparently need? More epic, more scope, more reverb, more, you know, it needs to be more more powerful, bigger, right? Um, this, the, this story, the poem... The, the story that the poem is telling, the rhetoric of the poem itself is becoming greater in the second version than it was. But it's also becoming greater, larger, in different ways, in that we get more, um, that we get more details. Jordan says uh, that, uh, that Bray no longer, 
right? He says, don't donkeys bray? Did Hurin just call Morgoth a jackass to his face? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that, that's, that's pretty much it, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, so as I was saying, in addition to this great increase in sort of the scope and scale of uh, of 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 the poem and and its uh, its 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 epicness, we also get more more details, less summary, right? Less cursory. Uh, like for instance, um, I found this description very. Um, very, uh, uh, very moving. Uh, we get more about Morwen here. Lo, the Lady Morwen in the land of shadow waited in the woodland for her well-beloved, but he came never to clasp her nigh from that black battle. She abode in vain. No tidings told her whether taken or dead or lost in flight he lingered yet, laid waste his lands and his lieges slain, and men unmindful of that mighty lord in Dorloman dwelling dealt unkindly with his wife in widowhood. She went with child, and a son must succor, sadly orphaned, Turin Thalion of tender years. In days of blackness was her daughter born, and named Neonor, a name of tears. In that language of Eld is lamentation. The increased... Now, we've seen this... And I'm not saying, like, oh, version 1 was totally not emotionally powerful at all, and this one is really... No, it was, and we saw that. But there are... Some of the moments which had not been nearly as, as emotionally powerful, in which we had not kind of gone so deep emotionally into that moment. Um, we get here now, in this version of the poem. I think that his depiction of Morwen's grief and Morwen's, and Morwen's situation here, um, this sets up her decision and the difficulty of her decision to send Turin away much more powerfully. We talked about that, you know, really poignant moment of Turin, young Turin, crying out to his mom um, from the from the forest, right after she's out of sight, and his voice coming back. And we get that scene almost exactly the same, um, but we didn't have her side quite so much. Again, it was it was a very moving, it's a very stirring depiction of him. Now we get, I think, a great deal more. Uh, more stirring depiction of of Morwen as well. Um, so um, that's oh yes, Tom. Thank you. I meant to talk about that, but you're abs- but but I forgot. And you're correct to remind me. Thinking back to Hurin for a second, uh, Tom is of course pointing out the the irony of how uh, Hurin's vision, right? Him saying, "I see from afar." Uh, you know the 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 wrath of the gods roused in anger. I I see from a distance your doom coming upon you. So Morgoth coming back to him and saying, <clears throat> "Oh, you're going to see from a distance doom coming, all right, right." Um, and then he takes that boast and turns it against him and uh, makes him uh, makes him see um, see this. But of course, you remember as Tom is remembering that detail that we got at the end of the tale of Turambar in the Book of Lost Tales. Hurin gets the last laugh, right? Because, yes, Morgoth makes him see afar the terrible doom laid upon his son, but ultimately, his son is wielding the sword that's going to kill Morgoth in the last battle at the end of days. 
Turin is going to take Morgoth down. And so thus shall the prophecy of Hurin and, perversely, the doom of Morgoth, that Hurin shall look upon the doom of his son, come together and are both made true. It's kind of awesome. Now that element of the story, that Turin with his black sword is going to be the one who ultimately kills Morgoth, vanishes by the early 30s, really, very early 30s. Um, the last references we ever see to that story, um, that story concept, is, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, the 1930 Quinta. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, it's there, uh, uh, and, and perhaps is still looming here now. Um, Anyway, even so, I, so I, but I was talking about other ways in which the story is growing, growing larger ways in which he is filling in some of this, uh, this sort of emotional depth, not giving it to us in, in quite as. It, it sounds, doesn't it sound like version two is meant to be a much longer poem than version one was? Um, that, and, and think about how, um, think about how version one unfolded, right? The pacing of it. We got the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, the confrontation between Hurin and Morgoth, Turin's entire childhood, his fostering in Doriath, um, his the the scene with the accidental manslaughter of or elf slaughter of Orgoth, and uh, and his his depart- and then his friendship with Beleg, all the way up through the betrayal of the camp of Beleg and Turin and their companions, uh, and, uh, and the capture of Turin from which Beleg is going to rescue him. All of that story. And then the story of Beleg choosing to pursue and find Turin and rescue him, and then the tragic death of Turin. The death of Beleg. Beleg's rescue of Turin and then his accidental murder by Turin takes as much time as the entire rest of the poem up to that point. Right when he gets to that moment, when he gets to the moment of Beleg's hero- heroic rescue and tragic murder, um, he like pauses and dilates and dilates, and it kind of seems to me that after he does that, he's sort of like, "Oh yeah, no, this is where I want to live." Right? I don't want this poem to be a couple thousand lines long. I want this poem to be tens of thousands line, uh, lines long. Right? Absolutely. That's where we should be going with this. Right? Um, and so, I mean, this seems to be a great deal more, even in less consequential things, like not just Hurin's awesomeness in battle, Hurin's defiance of Morgoth, Morwin's grief, right? Not only, but even in smaller things, like his description of how things looked and felt. This passage jumped out at me in that way. Um, this is so Turin and his two guardians who are taking him to Doriath and they're trying to get through it vainly, trying to get through the girdle. There Turin and the twain knew torture of thirst and hunger and fear and hideous flight from wolf riders and wandering orcs and the things of Morgoth that thronged the woods. There, numbed and wetted, they had nights of waking, cold and clinging, when the creaking winds summer had vanquished, and in silent valleys a dismal dripping in the distant shadows ever splashed and spilt over spaces endless from rainy leaves, till arose the light grayly, grudgingly, gleaming thinly at drenching dawn. They were drawn as flies in the magic mazes. They missed their ways and strayed steerless, and the stars were hid and the sun sickened. 
somber and weary had the mountains been, the marches of Doriath, bewildered and wayworn, wound them helpless in despair and error, and their spirits foundered. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? I mean, that description, this is one of the best descriptions of a miserable rainy night uh, that I can think of. Um, nights of waking, cold and clinging when the creaking winds summer had... Van- I mean, the, the, the description, it's the night, right? The antecedent of the adjectives cold and clinging is nights, right? They had nights of waking, cold and clinging. Um, and applying those that the nights themselves are described as cold and clinging but of course it it it, it invites us to imagine you know th- them being freezing in their wet clothes that are plastered to their body when the creaking winds uh which have destroyed summer right they've put summer to rout uh and in silent valleys a dismal dripping in the distant shadows ever splashed and spilt over spaces endless from rainy leaves and then it's morning and things are all better now, till arose the light grayly, grudgingly, gleaming thinly at drenching dawn. Ah, amazing. Arthur, you are absolutely right um, that he says in the later work the girdle is vaguely described. This gives a better sense of what it really meant. Absolutely. It really does. Um, the marches of Doriath, bewildered and wayworn, wound them helpless in despair and error. Um, this passage, and you know, that, and of course, it goes on after this. Um, but this part in this poem is the only place I can think of that um, we really get a description of what it was like to try to pass through the girdle of Melian. What was it? How did it work? Um, we get more of that here. So again, even this bringing us this close. How did Turin physically feel as he was traveling? you know, in hunger and thirst and misery uh, through the woods. And again, you know, are you remembering Bilbo in Mirkwood with the drops coming down? Are you remembering Bilbo in Chapter 2 of The Hobbit on the night that they met the trolls uh, when everything was soaking wet and they were sitting there miserably with the with the rain dropping from the trees on, on their heads and hoods? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we, you know, we we we've already gotten we've already gotten some of this, right? And this this uh, certainly ranks up there with those. Um, but um, anyway, so this is what I mean when I say the poem seems to be, you know, bigger. One more, one more example, uh, and then I'll and then I'll leave this here. This is Thingol as when he receives the helm, the dragon helm. Then a thought was thrust into Thingol's heart, and Turin was called, and told kindly that his mother Morwen, a mighty thing had sent to her son, his sire's heirloom, or written with runes by rites of yore in dark dwarfland in the deeps of time, ere men to Mithrim and misty Hithlam, or the world wandered. It was worn aforetime by the father of the fathers of the folk of Hurin, whose sire Gumlin to his son gave it, ere his soul was severed from his sundered heart. "'Tis Telkar's work, of worth untold, "'its wearer warded from wound or magic, "'from glaive guarded or gleaming axe. "'Now Hurin's helm, hoard till manhood, "'to battle bids thee, then bravely don it, "'go wear it well. "'Woeful-hearted did Turin touch it, but take it not, "'too weak to wield that mighty gear, "'and his mind in mourning for Morwen's answer "'was mazed and darkened.'" 
<laughs> Arthur's wondering if the, this thought hadn't been thrust into Thingol's heart, uh, he wouldn't have give to, given Turin the thing his mom said. Well, no, Turin's mom sent it to Thingol. It's a gift to him. Remember, she was too proud not to have a gift to send to Thingol. She didn't want to admit she had nothing to offer. It's the thing, kind of thing you're supposed to do to give a gift, right? Um, and uh, so this was all she had. So she was giving this to Thingol, and Thingol's like, I've got an idea. I'll give it to Turin, his father's helmet. Um, which is kind, though unnecessary, though that's what good kings do, right? Is give away <clears throat> to others the treasures that are given to them. Um, so this isn't about this is rightly yours exactly. It's also binding Turin to Thingol as well. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Arthur, he says, um, Turin was called and told kindly that his mother Morwen a mighty thing had sent to her son. Thingol's lying. It's a white lie, but he's lying. He's telling Turin. So notice, it's not just like, hey, I've got this, uh, I've got this, uh, uh, this really sweet helm here, um, but I'm going to give it to you because, uh, you know, it was your dad's anyway, but anyway, it's a sweet helm and I want you to have a sweet helm. No, it's not just about the helm. It's about the fiction, and it's fiction, that Thingol is generating that Morwen... Because he knows it's going to mean much more to Turin if he thinks that Morwen sent the gift to him. So he doesn't only... He is generous. Thingol is generous not only in giving it... Uh, not only in handing on this gift, but in even... Not... He even gives up the credit for that, right? Um, normally, gift-giving is creates that bond, as I was saying, between the king and the giver, right? But he's not sort of taking credit for it, right? Um, he is basically saying to Turin, yeah, your mom wanted me to give this to you, right? Um, and th- I think that is really, really thoughtful and sweet of Thingol, uh, because he, and I don't usually use the word sweet of Thingol's actions, but this one totally is. Um, that he, because he knows how much Turin misses his mom and how much he loves his mother. Um, and just as Morwen wanted to sort of um, conceal her own poverty by giving this great gift to be sent back to the king, it's like Thingol is also concealing that poverty, right? Um, and so he's kind of making it sound like it's better, right? Than uh, than, it, than but the situation is better than it actually is. And here's here's like you know your your mom has this great heirloom to pass on down to you, right? She's fine, and uh, in fact she's in the heirloom distribution business these days, right? Um, and Nancy, yeah, Turin's reaction, uh, he's not happy to have the helm. <clears throat> we see, yeah, he's. Um, He's first just in mourning that Morwen won't come, right? That she said no. He he wanted her, not a not a helm, however nice. <clears throat> but also, I think I see another element there in the first half of that last sentence. Woeful hearted did Turin touch it, but take it not. Too weak to wield that mighty gear. Um, it's the and and his mind in mourning for Morwen's answer. Yeah, one of the things making him sad is that Morwen said she wouldn't come. But the other thing, 
he touched it but didn't take it because he's too weak to wield it, right? Um, it seems like this is the helm of my father. I can barely even pick this thing up, right? Um, that young Turin is seems to be woeful-hearted, maybe, because he doubts himself and whether he will ever live up to his father's heirloom. Um, you know, I mean, this is kind of a a dark and sad way to look at things, but dark and sad is what Turin's character is like, we were told. Um, anyway, again, just, just another example. Oh, and by the way, side note, look, good dwarves, right? Telkar's work of worth untold, uh, right? It's, uh, it's, uh, uh, overwritten with runes by rites of yore in dark dwarf land, and that's not apparently a bad thing, right? So, hey, look, dwarves aren't all bad. Um, Okay. I only want to talk about one more thing. Um, I am content to do this kind of a larger overview of version two, um, you know, rather than kind of going through the whole story scene by scene or, or anything. I just wanted to touch on some of these examples to point to what seems to me the trend of version two. It's not just getting longer. It's getting more, uh, uh, more in depth, more uh, more sort of emotionally complex and sensitive, uh, more awesome and more epic. You know, it's uh, it's uh, I really like um, I really like um, uh, version two. By the way, um, what's Telkar's claim to fame? Where do you know that name from? What else did uh, What else was Telkar's work? Narsil, Arthur, got it. Yes, exactly, Narsil. Um, Aragorn says it when he's at the gates, at the doors of Theoden, uh, and he's explaining, but, you know, uh, Telkar wrought it in the depths of time, um, uh, as he says to Hama, the door ward. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tom, I think he did, he did uh, also make Baron's knife. Um but uh, but yeah, I was thinking of uh, I was thinking of Aragorn's quote. Um, so are you guys hearing me? I'm seeing. I had uh, my picture was frozen there for a second. I want to make sure my audio is coming through. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it's okay if my pictures. You know, if you're seeing like for a long time, as long as you can hear me, I don't care. Um, good. Um, there's one other trend about version two that I found very noticeable. And in fact, funny. I really, uh, um, I really, uh, 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 I was laughing. And it was hard because, I mean, it's like it kind of undermines the sort of the epic effect, but when you look at this poem, version two of The Lay of the Children of Horn, with hindsight, right, with the hindsight of Tolkien's biography, Version 2 is hilarious, isn't it? That is, we know it's going to happen, right? We know it's what the future holds. Epic, awesome, hugely long, bigger, better version 2 of the Lay of the Children of Hurin is not going to happen. We know it's not even going to get... He's not even going to get as far in as he did with version 1. Why not? Why isn't he going to get there? What is the downfall of the Lay of the Children of Hurin? at least according to Christopher Tolkien and the manuscript evidence, 
and I would argue version 2 exactly Nancy he's going to start writing the way of Lathian instead he's going to shift over from he's going to set the children of Horn aside and he's going to write the lay of Lathian instead uh, can't you see it can you feel it coming <laughs> right in version 2 we can you can feel the lodestone pull of the story of Baron and Luthien right you can see there's this like narrative seduction <laughs> going on in this story where uh you know Tolkien is writing he's totally right not only is he writing rewriting the children of and he's making it bigger better and 65 to 70% more awesome than it was before and yet the whole time <laughs> he's he's you remember when Morwen had the idea to send Turin to Thingol in, in, in version 1, right? We got, like, a few lines summarizing briefly the story of Baron and Luthien. She's like, hey, because we're related to Baron, and you know Baron, you know, Baron married Luthien, and like they got together, and they found the Silmarils, and it was awesome. But he was like, I don't remember exactly how many lines, but it was only a few lines. Same moment, um, same moment, in uh, in 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 the second version, and the little synopsis of the story of Baron and Luthien grows and grows. It's like a page long. We get the whole blow by blow of the entire story, right? And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You really really want to tell that story, but that story is just really clawing its way out, uh, you know. And then he's like, no, 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 no. No, anyway, <clears throat> Children of Horn, as I was saying, Children of Horn, right? And he gets back to Turin, and it's good, and it's really good. And then they start traveling again, and then what happens? Right? It's, so, so, okay, sorry. Anyway, as, as I was saying, so Turin parted, and it was very sad, right? It was even sadder than before. And then they were traveling, and then they were on the dark road. And the road to Doriath was dark, and... And 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 they were it was awful and it was wet and it was clammy and it was sad and so they needed something to keep up their spirits so they told stories. What story did they tell? Oh yeah, the story of Baron and Luthien, right? In fact, here in full is the verse that was sung by one of them, and we get light as leaf on linden tree, right? This very long, very intricate poem telling the entire story of. Baron and Luthien. Well, not the entire story of Baron and Luthien, but uh, telling the story of Baron and Luthien, right? Inserted, despite the fact that we're deviating from the meter. Sorry, we, 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 we briefly interrupt this alliterative poem uh, to bring you this intricately rhymed stanzaic poem uh, in iambic tetrameter. Um, and then we're going to return uh, to, um, uh, to, <laughs> uh, to the children of Hurin again, and then it not too long after that is gonna is gonna is gonna peter out, right? Um, so it just it seems really clear that he you can see his uh, his attraction to the Baron and Luthien story, and it is totally not a shock to see uh, to to learn you know from Christopher and uh, the you know in the manuscript evidence that he set uh, the children of Horn aside and said, all right, forget it, you know, forget it. I. I can resist no longer. I'm going to tell the story of the Lay of Lathian. Um, and uh, it is... Uh, it is awesome. Um, I 
and when I say it is awesome, I mean Light His Leaf on Linden Tree, the poem that he wrote there is awesome. Um, I want to look at that. I want to look at that whole thing because I can't get enough of this poem. There's some of you in this class who have heard me talk about this poem a lot. I, uh, I, I We spent like an almost entire class session in my poetry class on this poem. I just did like a whole session at the New York Tolkien Conference uh, when I appeared there, this whole poetry workshop, which focused primarily... Um, it sort of divided itself, my session there, between uh, discussing Let His Leaf on Linden Tree and uh, singing the troll song. Um, but um, anyway, uh, I, so you know, I hope that those of you who have... Uh, 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 heard me talk about this poem a lot will be patient. I'm not going to start it now because I have no illusions that I can talk about this in uh, four or even nine minutes, so I'm uh, not going to do that right now. We'll start with it next time. But actually, I think it it fits relatively well. Next week, we're going to be looking at the uh, um, the intermediary chapter between the Children of Hurin and the Lay of Lathian. Uh, these poems early abandoned, as Christopher Tolkien calls them. Um, so I want to look at these snippets and try to get a sense of um, what are we seeing in this, you know, what are we seeing in this whole endeavor that Tolkien is doing here? Again, he did the Book of Lost Tales, mostly. Did, didn't finish, but did the Book of Lost Tales, right? Um, that is, a prose frame narrative which incorporates prose versions of these stories. So he's bringing the whole mythology together through that frame narrative. That was attempt number one of put of bringing this mythology together and putting it out. Now he's left that behind, at least temporarily, and what he has shifted to here, uh, you know, in the 20s, in the early and middle 20s, is... Uh, that is not his 20s, in the 1920s, um, is uh, doing these epic versions of particular stories. Um, we don't get much of those poems early abandoned, of course, but I'll be interested to see what we do get and what kind of trends we see. What sorts of stories was he telling? What do we see in those stories? And I am quite... Uh, glad, actually, to talk about Light as Leaf on Linden Tree in that context as well, um, as it's kind of a spin-off, right? Uh, it creates a whole spin-off show, a whole spin-off poem uh, from uh, from the way of the children of, of, of Horton. So we're going to talk about those poems early abandoned. We're going to talk about Light as Leaf on Linden Tree as a way of sort of transitioning into the Lay of Lathian and thinking about what's going to be coming in about, you know, to, 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 to take those snippets as a way of getting a kind of an overview of how Tolkien was approaching telling the stories from his mythology during this time. We'll look... So, read Light as Leaf on Linden Tree, that differently... Um, uh, that... Uh, uh, that... Uh, that differently... Uh, I don't want an adverb there. Um, uh, that metrically different, that's what I want. Um, that very metrically different section of poetry in the middle of the alliterative verse. And uh, we'll talk about that at uh, uh, length next time, and uh, along with those other poetry snippets. And then after that, on to uh, the Lay of Lathian we go. 
Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining me, and I will see you guys next week. I uh, have to warn you, I'm traveling again next week. It's summertime. Um, So uh, I'm going to be off with my family in a different place. I might... I don't know where I'm going to be. I'm planning to do class no matter what happens, so plan on that. We'll do that, but just to warn you, you might have to... If uh, we have any technical problems... uh, Don't say I didn't warn you, but we'll do our best. Anyway, thanks very much, everybody. See you next week. Bye now.